your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this is our final week. We're going to be, uh, we're gonna be uh, covering head coverings. <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Do hope you're doing well this morning. Excited to uh, hear what the Lord did in Staten Island next week as we'll be having our missions report uh, next Sunday. And then uh, the following two weeks we'll be having um, some guest speakers, as Dennis said, uh, uh, Zach Guggenheim uh, with Disciple Makers Ministry is coming over. And then the following week we have um, Derek Van Ruler. Uh, he's one of the he's the pastor of one of the churches we pray for, Sunbury City Church. Uh, will be coming on the twenty first to speak uh, f- uh, with uh, for us uh, on that Sunday. Uh, but we are going to finish up this passage, verses two to sixteen, uh, that we've been looking at. And as I mentioned last week, I know uh, there can be a little bit of a difficulty. Summertime is the time everyone's traveling, so maybe it's been uh, hit and miss. As we have gone through this passage, and Paul does kind of build a logical argument here for what he is talking about. Um, So if you're lost at all this morning, I'd encourage you to go to our website uh, or uh, go to our our stream services on YouTube, and you can catch um, some of our other sermons that we have looked at in 1 Corinthians 11. But we are talking again that we as Christians are called to cling to what truly matters. It's easy to get sidetracked by many different things. Even as the Corinthian church getting sidetracked, um, individuals within the church getting sidetracked uh, regarding an issue such as head coverings and they lose the full picture of what those head coverings represent. And uh, Paul deals with that in verses 2 to 16. And we see the truth of this principle that we must cling to what truly matters even when it comes to difficult passages within this book such as this issue of head coverings. And I think it's a reminder once again to us that all Scripture is given by God, is inspired by God, and it is profitable. I hope that uh, as we've gone through this passage that you're realizing that, that this passage is about so much more than the single issue of head coverings. While Paul still addresses this issue, uh, we have to keep in mind Paul's larger teaching regarding God's design and intent for men and women, and their function in the local church. Now for the past couple weeks, we've been uh, looking at some key truths regarding men and women. We saw two weeks ago that from verses 2 to 6, that God has designed distinct roles for men and women. Before Paul ever deals with the issue of head coverings uh, and addresses it specifically, Uh, In verse 4, he mentions these relationships in verse 3 of man and Christ, of the wife and her husband, and even of Christ and God. 
We see that each one of those relationships, as we've, as we've talked about, there are roles involved. There is submission that is displayed. It's not just a wife who is called to submit. We are called to submit in, in all relationships. Ultimately, submitting to Christ as Lord. And then we saw last week in verses 7 to 12, the second factor, the second truth regarding men and women, that men and women are called to bring glory to God. That yes, we even bring glory to God in our relationships, our roles that we have with one another. And Paul mentions in verses 7 to 10 that we display God's glory as evidenced in His creation design. The beginning of verse 7 says that man brings glory to God. And then in verses, the latter half of verse 7 to verse 9, it talks about woman bringing man glory. And we took some time from Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about what that means. And then in verse uh, 10, we see that the expression of, of God's creative intent. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels in that difficult verse. And we uh, took some time to explain what that's talking about. That um, this, this head covering was actually dignifying to woman and God's design for woman that that man was made from the dust of the ground and man reflects God's glory woman was made from the rib of Adam and in the sense that woman was made from man woman displays the glory of man and the fact that man was created by God, woman was created by God as well, but taken from man. And then we saw in verse 9, talking about God's creative order, Adam and then Eve, it says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And we talked about how that is not woman was created to meet every whim of man or the wife of a husband, but it's talking about God created man and woman, both in the image of God, to fulfill God's creation design, His mandate to fill the earth, to multiply, to bring God glory across the globe as image bearers. Well, today we're going to look, we're going to continue to look at this second key truth, that men and women are to bring glory to God. And then we're going to finish with the third and final truth. And we're going to tie it all up for us this morning. So as we begin, we are going to once again continue in the second key truth. That men and women are to bring glory to God. But let's begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for every part of your word. Lord, I thank You for those parts that are easier to understand. They're easier to, uh, to apply to our lives. And Lord, I thank You for those passages of Scripture that make us scratch our heads. That make us roll up our sleeves and, and, and dig in 
Father, all Scripture truly is given by You. Given to instruct us in our theology and how that theology plays out in our life and how that theology prepares us for physical death. How that theology prepares us for eternal life. And Lord, I pray that once again, that Lord, as we look at this issue of head coverings, that yes, we gain a deeper understanding regarding that issue, but Lord, we see the bigger picture of what Your Word is giving. That You have designed creation. You have designed men and women. You have designed husband and wives to to live in accordance with Your design, to carry out the roles that You have given so that man and woman can flourish together, bringing You glory. And Lord, that is true in our local church as Paul is dealing with this issue in the context of the local church. And this is true in our homes. Lord, as we seek to be families, seek to be individuals that bring You glory. Lord, I pray that You would just put that passion in our hearts. Lord, that no matter what the issue is, no matter where it is we are at, what it is we are doing, Lord, that our chief aim as individuals, as a church, is Your glory. Not our own prestige, not our own uh, fleshly desires, not our own name to be recognized or people to like us, but Lord, for Your glory to shine forth. Lord, let us be a city on a hill faithful to You, centered on Your Word. Lord, that is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Men and women are to bring glory to God. In verses 7 to 10, once again, the context, Paul brings us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. To show God's design from the very beginning of creation. That this issue of head coverings isn't just an issue in and of itself, but it points to a greater reality. And as we continue looking at this second principle, men and women are to bring glory to God, there's one final facet of this that I want us to look at and that Paul wants us to see that again stems back to Genesis 1 and 2. Lest there is any confusion regarding what he has just said and written in verses 7 to 10. Lest anyone could misinterpret verse 9 
that it says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, lest anyone could abuse that verse. Paul says in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. You see, men and women are to bring glory to God, yes, by the glory that is shown in God's creation design. Yes, by the expression of God's creative intent. And according to the context, we'll talk about this more, the expression of God's creative intent was that men did not wear head coverings and women did. But then Paul gets to another aspect of men and women bringing glory to God, that there is glory that has been designed by God in the interdependence of man and woman. So man cannot misinterpret verse 9 to say, ah, woman was created for man, so we don't really need the woman. Or I as a husband, I don't really need my wife. She's a a nice accessory. Doesn't that sound terrible? (laughs) But somehow the woman, the wife is second rate. Paul says, no, 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 no. We display God's glory in the reality that there is an interdependence of man and of woman, of husband and of wife. We see in verse 11 God's interdependent design. Literally, the, uh, verse 11 could be read if... if Um, Our English translations are very nice because they smooth out the English. Uh, They smooth out the language for us. If we read uh, a literal word by word in the order that it's presented in the original languages, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to us because languages have their um, their own expression. But literally, if you were to read verse 11, it would say, Nevertheless, Neither woman apart from man, nor man apart from woman in the Lord. God has beautifully orchestrated the the apex of His creation, which day 6, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us as the creation of man and woman. And He has beautifully created man and woman to be interdependent. Dependent. Neither can thrive apart from the other. And when I say that, I don't mean that if you are, are somehow single, that you are not, are not able to thrive because you are not joined to a spouse. No, in the design of Christ's local church, and and Titus talks about this, is that men are to consider the women in their church in an appropriate way their sisters in Christ. And and women are, are are to consider men in an appropriate way their brothers, that we need each other, men and women in the local church. Marriage is not a means to an end. 
But we need the influence, we need the ministry, we need the perspective of both men and women. Because God has created men and women unique, yet interdependent. In fact, in verse, in verse 11, it says, In the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. This is not Paul's own idea. This is not Paul's own take. No, this is all designed from the Lord. We see God's interdependent design, but we also see the function of man and woman in verse 12. What does verse 12 say? For as woman... Here's why, uh, why we know, according to God's design, that man and, and woman are not created to be independent from one another. It says, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Isn't that the wisdom of God on display? That the very uh, physical, visible reminder... That men and women play an interdependent role with one another is expressed every time new life is born. Once again, Paul is, is basing what he is saying not on his own opinion, but based in Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2. He begins by saying the woman came from man, and we talked about this last week. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Then man said, Adam says this when he sees woman, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, uh, what, what Adam is saying here is this at last. That word... Uh, um, At last, it's a time word. In other words, in the context of Genesis 2, what was Adam doing? He was naming the animals. And he's seeing that there's pairs to everything. Adam is exercising his uh, God-given dominion over what God has created as, 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 as God's representative by naming all these animals. And then it says there was no one found for Adam. He sees Eve and automatically he says, at last, this one I can identify with. This one was created for me. And he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, uh, Even more descriptive, literally, bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see how chapter 11 and verse 11, or verse 12, woman was made from man is a direct reference to this verse, Genesis 2.23. But not only that, we also see that man comes from woman. So man, verse 12, is now born of woman. You see, while Adam was created first, and we see God's creative design, that, that um, 
in relationship with, with that we talked about last week that, that Adam or man was created first. Adam was given the ultimate um, responsibility, responsibility to ensure that obedience um, to God was kept. Every other life that was created outside of Adam has been brought about through the woman. In fact, Genesis 3.20, it says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. None of us can claim independence from woman. We all have mothers, right? Whether they're good mothers or bad mothers, we all have mothers. God's creative design was reflected in this very issue of birth. I like what uh, Andy Nasali says. He says this, Men and women need each other. Neither could continue existing without the other. They literally could not live without each other. They are interdependent. The implication is clear. A husband or wife is not inherently better or more important than the other. So once again, we need to put into context what Paul is saying. When Paul says there are various roles that are given to a husband and a wife, and even in the broader context of the church, and we're going to um, touch on this in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, there are various roles that God has given men and women in the church that has nothing to do with the inherent value of men or women. You see, God's creative design at the end of verse 12, it says, Man was made, uh, woman was made for man, uh, man is born of woman, and all things are from God. God is the source of all things. We bring glory to God by honoring Him as the source and the designer of all things. So as men and women function together, whether that's in the context of the local church or that's in the context of the home, we bring glory to God together. That's the way God designed it. Can I ask you this morning, are you bringing your glory to God, husbands, in the way you view and treat your wives. Wives, are you bringing glory to God in the way you biblically submit to your husbands? Men, are you bringing glory to God even on a broader spectrum in the way you view and treat women in general and the way you talk about them? The way you, you view them? You know, we, uh, uh, we can even devalue God's creation by what we see happening in culture all around us in sexualizing men, uh, sexualizing women. And vice versa. 
Are we bringing glory to God in our relationships? But I want to close on a final aspect of God's design for men and women. This is a a pretty simple, no-brainer aspect. We've looked that God has designed distinct roles for men and women. We've seen that men and women are to bring glory to God. Well, how do we wrap this all together? With this simple truth, men and women are called to be obedient to God's design. How are we responding to what God has designed and his creative intent? I want to give you a few principles here. First of all, if we're going to be obedient to God's design, we have to first of all discern truth. Paul says here, the very first phrase in verse 13, judge for yourselves. You see, what Paul is doing here, he calls on immediate personal action. He uses the same terminology in chapter 10 and verse 15. Pastor Dennis preached on this, dealing with with idolatry in the eating of meat the drinking of drinks, and the context of pagan temples. He says, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I just want to stop here and to make a side note, and this is true in any issue that we are dealing with, that we are called to recognize and to respond to truth. It's easy to just make a mental assent to truth and to say, okay, yeah, I see that from Scripture. And then what do we do? We do what like James talks about. We, We walk away from the mirror forgetting what Scripture revealed and we just continue on. No, Paul says here, you are to make a conscious judgment about what I am saying. And this judgment isn't simply, well, I'm going to go my own way. It is, I am going to respond to the truth that that has been presented to me as truth. I'm not going to make my own truth, go my own way. I am going to recognize and not just recognize, but respond to the truth that has been given to me in obedience. We have to discern truth. But then secondly, if we're called to be obedient to God's design as men, as women, we have to build these values on what indeed is God's design, on what indeed is God's intent, not our own conceptions or cultural conceptions of what that truth is. So after Paul just explains from Genesis God's creative design, this theological truth, he calls for a response, judge for yourselves. And in addition to what he just said uh, in the context of Genesis, he now adds a new facet here. He says in verse 13, is it proper for a wife to pray to God? with her head 
uncovered? So now we are going once again to the theological truth that has been true ever since creation. This is the way that God has designed creation, that men and women have different roles. And now he goes back to the cultural issue of what the expression of those roles was in the first century and the struggle that Christians are having with this cultural element. See, if we're going to build our values on God's design, we have to ask ourselves, what is fitting? What is appropriate? Paul asks this both in light of everything he has just said in verses 2 to 12, really focusing in on verses 7 to 10, but then he's also going to ask, answer yourselves, what is appropriate in the Lord in light of what he's going to continue to say. And in verse, uh, the end of verse 13, the question is, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? In verse 14, he says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. You may scratch your head and say, now, now what is this talking about? What is this talking about? A man with long hair, a woman with the need for long hair. How do we take this? Not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. You see, when we're building our values on God's design, we say, okay, according to the theological truth of Scripture, what is fitting, what is appropriate? But we see that God has also graced us with an internal compass regarding His creative design. You see, there's also the question that Paul asks, what is in accordance with nature? In fact, we see this word nature in verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you? In other words, this isn't even coming from Scripture. God has also given a natural revelation to His creations. What is this natural revelation? What is nature itself teaching you? This word nature... It can refer to the regular or established order of things. What we would naturally think about with the word nature. This word is used in various places in the New Testament. I want to I give you two of those places. They're, they're not on the overhead, so you can uh, listen or turn. Uh, in Romans chapter 1. Again, dealing with creation... God's design in verse 26 to 27. Paul says this, talking about those who have willfully, they have turned from God, they have gone into their own ways, into idolatry. Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged 
their natural relations for those that are contrary, and here's the word, to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we see here that women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men have done the same in their own pride and arrogance. And, and we talked about this before, but boy, pride is a, a great description for Pride Month being a great description for the pride in man's heart to place themselves above God Himself and the designs that He has intended. There is that which is according to the regular or established order of things that God Himself has designed. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, a chapter later, talking about the Jews would pride themselves that they have the law Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. What is Paul saying here when he uses this word nature that we see in 1 Corinthians? That even the Gentiles, though they were not given the law of God in written form, in their consciences... In, by nature, there is a moral compass of doing what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. In other words, it's according to God's natural design. So Paul says here a universal theological truth in verse 14 and 15. We have to ask ourselves, what is that universal natural truth? Because in this passage, we see an interweaving of timeless theological truth and cultural truth. This word nature also can have a cultural aspect to it. What we are looking here at here is... A cultural principle, as one says, versus a cultural practice. A cultural principle is something that is a timeless truth. Remember, everything that Paul is saying, he is basing from Genesis 1 and 2. There is a theological truth, a theological foundation to what Paul is saying. But there is also a cultural practice that we find in head coverings. And we see something similar as Paul is mentioning long hair. Did you know that in the first century culture, long hair reflected a denial of masculinity in Roman culture? It, it was seen as a symbol of homosexuality in, in the Roman world. And Paul says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace 
for him. That word disgrace can also be translated, it is a dishonor. It's the same word in Romans 1.26 that we looked at, dishonorable passions. That which goes against God's creative intent. And then we see in verse 15, if a woman has long hair, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. We see a contrast here between men and women. It is a disgrace, a dishonor here for a man to have long hair, but in honor, it is a reflection of the glory of God's uh, high esteem of his creation of woman for a woman to have long hair. Now we are going to once again tie up the loose ends here as we continue But what we see is that Paul is addressing a cultural issue. That for a man to have long hair in the the first century, it was a shame. It was a symbol, a sign of going against what is natural. And it was the same thing for a woman to have short hair, as Paul says earlier. He says, uh, um, women, wives, you're not wearing head coverings. That would almost be the equivalent of shaving your head. And, And he basically says, none of you would do that. It would be a shame, a disgrace for you to do that. And then he mentions, he goes at the end of verse 15, and he says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So we see Paul mentions this idea of a woman has long hair. It is for her glory. And you remember we looked at Psalm 8, that uh, God has created mankind. And He's created them, yes, a little lower uh, than the angels, but He's created them with glory and honor. And how do we reflect that glory and honor? By living in accordance with God's design. That as men and women live according to God's design, as husbands and wives live according to God's design, it is is a showcase of God's glory. But then Paul adds this phrase, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now there's different ways of that different individuals have understood this phrase for a covering. The word for, it can mean in place of a covering. And some people think that, well, what Scripture teaches is that it wasn't that women wore a veil, it was that their long hair itself was the covering that Paul is talking about. The biggest problem with that is that according to the context, it seems that Paul would have made mention of hair being a covering Earlier in the passage when he is multiple times dealing with the the, the woman uh, needing a head covering. That the issue Paul seems to say that uh, in verse 6 that it would be disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head. Let her cover her head. That the, the issue is probably not that some women in the church were wanting to shave their heads. That they needed their long hair for 
this idea of displaying the role that God has given them in submission and faithfulness. Good Christians can hold to that. This, this, is, this, is, uh, this is a secondary issue. If not, this is uh, even below secondary issues. But it seems according to context that what this sentence is saying is that the long hair which reflects the glory of God's creative design for a woman, that it itself is a very symbol of a woman's need for that veil, that head covering. So let's apply this now. I want to close our time by looking at this reality that we must live according to God's design. Do women today, should they be wearing head coverings? You may say, well, Pastor Adam, that's what I've been wondering this whole time. <laughs> but hopefully you see that this is a much deeper issue than, than should we, should we not. Remember that, that youth group illustration? You know, as a teenager, your mind is, is filled with, can we do this or should we not? And, and all we care about is the should we or should we not. And it goes much deeper than that. I agree with what Tom Schreiner says, and I want to put this up just because I think he says this very succinctly. In many cultures today, whether women are covered or veiled during worship does not communicate anything about the relationship of men and women, though in the first century Corinth, it sent a powerful message. If women did not wear the covering, they brought shame on themselves and their husbands. And here's the important part. Each culture has to work out how the theological principles articulated works out in its particular circumstances. So you remember what we were saying about Paul is presenting theological truth and he's going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 to do that. What we see with this issue of head coverings, um, in, in, in my opinion, is a first century issue of how do we display the truth in an appropriate way that reflects God's design. Now we are not depending on your circles, uh, uh, where you're at, uh, we are not dealing with our head coverings or not wearing head coverings somehow reflecting a lack of submission or a denial of the roles of men and women or of husbands and wives. That is not a cultural issue in our day. Now, if you, if, if you know of a believer or know of a church that uh, the, the women do wear head coverings, again, this is not a foundational uh, issue to, to divide on in Christendom and in, in Christianity. If the conscience of an individual says, I feel that this is talking about women should wear head coverings, fine. 
Let's not make it into an act of legalism that one's relationship with God is dependent upon it. But that is fine. But I think what we are dealing here is that we are to work out this theological truth in the issues that confront us in our day. And in the first century, this was very much an issue. Like we've talked about in previous weeks, uh, not only the head covering being a sign of, of a woman's purity and, and, and submission and faithfulness to her husband, uh, of, of, a, of a single woman that, that desires to live in purity. There was also an issue for men that in pagan worship, uh, men would often cut priests, would, uh, priests that were men would cover their heads in pagan practices. Well, we are not dealing with those circumstances today, but that does not negate the theological truth that God has created men and women interdependent, yet also unique in God-given roles. So I want to make a few connections as we close this morning. We're really dealing with several issues in this text that spring from one another. Some of these issues we will uh, address more as we move along in the book. But the first issue then that we have to apply and connect is marriage. And of course, we've already talked about marriage, so there's not a whole lot that more that needs to be said. But you remember Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Those are the God-ordained roles that he has designed for a husband and a wife. So, wife, you may not be displaying your heart attitude through wearing a head covering or not wearing a head covering this morning, what Scripture is getting at is the heart. I want to give you an example of this. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter? If you're using a, a, a Bible that's been provided for you, it's page 1015 towards the back of your Bible. Do you want to know what Peter says in a very difficult situation that Christians, that Peter was writing to, that were scattered about in, in Asia Minor? They were facing some marital difficulties. There were women and men who married as unbelievers, and then as the gospel went out, one or the other spouse accepted Christ. And Paul deals with a marriage where one person is a believer, the other person is not. And we're not going to address um, the, the husband side of things. We're going to look here at what Paul says in regard to wives because it shows this principle of head coverings. In verse 1, Paul says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Get verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. We see here a perfect example of cultural practice versus timeless theological truth. This is the issue that we should be concerned about as Christians. Wives, it's not about should I wear an external head covering or not. It is, am I following God's design and role that He has placed upon me out of a heart to the Lord? And we don't need to get into, we already talked about faulty submission. And and submission is not just catering to the whims of, of your husband or doing the wrong thing and saying, I'm being submissive. No, we're not called to submit to sin. But I think you understand that what we are talking about, true biblical submission that comes from the heart, this is the theological truth that God has called us to. Paul is very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11 dealing with the marriage, with husbands and wives. But there's a second connection that this passage is dealing with, and it's dealing with worship. What is going on in the worship of the church? The relationship of men and women in the church. You see, both men and women minister in the body, but God has designed roles. Again, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 14 this truth. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, uh, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Again, that's one of those uh, statements, she is to remain quiet, that makes us be like, ooh, that sounds culturally inappropriate, and what does that mean? And, and, and you know, Pastor Dennis is preaching on 1 Corinthians 14, and he's going to get into that, because there's a, a passage there that says something very similar. What we do know is that in the local assembly, that does not mean that a woman just sits there like a bump on a log, because in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about women praying and prophesying in the church. But what I want you to see here is that God has even designed distinct roles for men and women in the life of the family of the local church. That men and men alone are called to be elders, to have um, that spiritual authority in the church, but that does not mean, once again, 
that that is done in an abusive or a negligent or a degrading way. Men need the counsel and input of women, whether that's in the home or in the church. But then I want to get to a third connection, and that deals with verses 14 and 15, that there is to be a, a simply a broad male-female distinction. In the first century, very clearly Paul shows us if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. One of the reasons that I think that, that this issue too, Paul is dealing here with an application of theological truth, specifically here to the Corinthian church in the first century, is how long is long hair? I mean, women, I see, I see some great hairstyles, but is it too short? You see, these are uh, issues dealing with the culture of the first century that Paul is addressing, and our responsibility is to take the truth that we see here, and we are to see the overall writing theological principle that Paul is portraying. There is to be a distinction in the appearance of men and women. Don't we see the wiping away of that distinction in culture today. We see that Satan is subverting, just like he did in the garden. Who did Satan go to in the garden? He went to Eve. Satan wasn't dumb. He knew that God had placed Adam as as the one who is, as we talked about, to guard and keep the garden. But Satan subverted that and said, I am going to do the opposite. And we see that Satan's been doing that ever since. So what we see today in the 21st century is no different than what Satan has always attempted to do. He subverts God's design. I believe that what this passage is teaching in verse 15 is that regardless of the culture, uh, regardless of what time period you live in, there is a theological truth according to nature that men and women are to be distinct. In other words, a man is to look like a man and a woman is to look like a woman. In our culture, it, uh, you know, a, a woman having short hair, it's not a shame and it doesn't, um, it can but it doesn't necessarily make a woman look like a man. There's to be a cultural distinction between men and women in our appearance. This will vary from culture to culture, yet a distinction is to remain present. I mean, think about the Old Testament. If you were uh, a Jew and you entered under the Nazarite vow... Um, part of that vow is you would not cut your hair. You would grow long hair. You think of Absalom. You think of Samson. Those guys were not going against what Paul is saying in having that long hair. There was that cultural perspective to it. Yet the truth, the theological truth was still there. 
You know, parents, if you, are, uh, uh, if you have young children in your home, we need to be actively teaching our kids about God's creation design for men and women, both in roles and in appearance. Uh, this past Friday, we went to, um, uh, to, to uh, Horseheads just to kind of uh, get away on my day off, and, and one of our stops is Barnes & Noble. Uh, when Timmy and Isaac were, were young, you know, they used to love the little Thomas train table that they had, and they played with the trains. And poor Sammy, he can't enjoy that because COVID, they just took that table away and all there are are books. <laughs> Imagine that. But anyway, it was interesting because I was kind of with the kids and uh, Rachel was looking through some of the kids' books and book after book after book that she was showing me was all about these cultural-driven issues. Homosexuality, you know, secretly, this girl likes this other, all of these cultural items, and it is so clear the, the agenda, I was about to say hidden agenda, but it's not hidden anymore, that our kids are being bombarded with everywhere. You see, parents, we have to teach and be committed ourselves, verse 13, judge for yourselves, and we need to be teaching our children the same thing, lest they become lost to culture. So as we conclude, we see that we must cling to what truly matters. Mm-hmm.